0: Welcome to the Beyond Organic Wine podcast. I'm Adam Huss, coming to you from the global epicenter for viticulture, Los Angeles, California. (laughs) Okay, yeah, Los Angeles isn't the global epicenter for viticulture. And maybe where you're from isn't either. And that's okay. Don't force it. Grapes are great. But if you look around and don't see them growing in wild abundance without a lot of help, maybe where you're from does something else greater than grapes. Maybe the lack of grapes where you are is a message from the earth. Maybe it's an opportunity to be unique. When I stopped telling Los Angeles what kind of wine I wanted to make and started asking it what kind of wine it wanted me to make, this land led me to make the most popular wine that Centralis has ever made. A wine unlike any other in California. A wine that included some native Los Angeles prickly pears. Centralis is my winery, by the way, and the premier sponsor for this podcast. It seems to me that what we have called wine and revered as wine and created certifications and diplomas about is not actually wine. It's one perspective on one kind of wine from one region of the planet. And I think the first step, the lowest hanging fruit, if you will, to having an authentic local wine culture is simply using local ingredients. Put another way, culture grows from the earth. If it is imported and forced onto the land, it is neither sustainable, nor is it culture. Do we even know what American wine, or Australian wine, or Chilean wine actually tastes like? Or do we only know what French wine tastes like when you make it in various places around the world? My guests for this episode are the gentlemen of Hermit Woods Winery in New Hampshire, Ken Hardcastle, Chuck Lawrence, and Bob Manley. They have an incredible story of asking these questions and beginning a journey of discovering and creating their local wine culture. These guys are exploring unexplored territory in wine, and they have a lot of knowledge to share about what they're finding. The wines of Hermit Woods Winery are well-aged, dry, textured, complex, with great mouthfeel and nuanced aromas, but they aren't made from grapes. They're made from a blend of things like quince, daylily, kiwi berry, black raspberry, honey, rhubarb, and many other fruits and plants and herbs and flowers and spices that thrive in New Hampshire. They make about 35 different wines at least every year, and they've been at this for over 15 years. They started by asking, does it have to be a grape? And I think they've answered that question with an emphatic, absolutely not. We cover their philosophy and their unique approach to winemaking in this conversation, and it is full of an inordinate amount of practical and helpful ideas for anyone who might want to consider joining this local wine movement. These guys are an incredible resource, whether for technical advice on navigating the particular challenges of fermenting things like tomatoes, or how long you need to wait before the Japanese knotweed wine stops smelling like baby wipes or for how to reconstruct a metaphoric grape. (laughs) Though this should be obvious, I think it's very important to point out that the diversity of ingredients that Hermit Woods uses supports, honors, and generates more biodiversity and more diversity of wines. There are many practical advantages to not relying on a single variety of fruit for your entire production. And also in the bigger picture, it leads to a healthier, more resilient, and more beautiful wine culture. These three friends are changing the world of wine as we know it, and they seem to be having a lot of fun doing it. Enjoy.
1: And an introduction. That's when we should speak over them.
0: Great. (laughs) Perfect. I've hit record. So, you know, uh, welcome you guys. Thank you. And feel free to talk over each other now to introduce yourselves. (laughs) Um, well, I'm, now, uh, uh, if you could all at least say your name so the sound of your voice is associated with a name at least for the moment, and people can figure out who you are maybe later. Are, my name saying. is
2: Ken. I'm Chuck. And I'm Bob.
0: Fantastic. And you guys as a, all together make up Hermit Woods Winery. Is correct. that correct? Yep. And you were just yeah. about to say sort of how what the culture is like there with Hermit Woods and how it's sort of related to this relationship that you guys have had for a long time, even prior to this winery?
2: Sure. Well, the the three of us met as friends uh, many years ago, probably uh, close to 20 years ago or more. And we began spending a lot of time together, sharing our hobbies and and, uh, a lot of mutual loves for a lot of different things, uh, not the least of which was alcohol and everything related to the fermenting of and making of crafting of of alcoholic beverages. Adam, Adam I, need, uh, I need to interrupt
1: first. here just for a moment. When the, the truth of the fact is that Bob and Chuck discovered that I brewed beer and they came over and proceeded to drink my beer as often as they could. <laughs> that's, that's really how it got started, I think.
0: <laughs> I see. I see. Well, I think we drank our own alcohol too, just to be fair.
2: There's no doubt about that. The only reason I know you, Ken, as I say to everybody at our, when I give a tour or talk about our history is the only reason we know each other is because I don't know how to make beer and I'm terrible <laughs> at it. So, uh, had, uh, so had somebody introduced problem. me to Ken, fortunately <laughs> for you. So, uh, so I had a choice to either uh, spend time with Ken learning how to make better beer and go home and make beer myself or... Uh, my choice ultimately was to just spend more time with Ken and drink his beer, and I've I've never made beer again since since meeting Ken. So, it's worked out yeah. quite well, and it's Lovely. resulted in the three of us spending an enormous amount of time together uh, th- around the topic of fermentation. And it started with beer, and it uh, rather rapidly after that branched off into into uh, fermenting just about anything and everything that we could get our hands on for the next six or seven years before this thing actually materialized into an actual business. And nice. I was ex- describing this process as part of how, you know, we, we talk about our, our video cast that we do every Monday night. And, and what we talk about, it's really because uh, this, this is, this business is about who we are as a, as a, as a trio. Um, you know, we often refer to ourselves as a fo- a photographer, uh, a, a geologist and a pilot, uh, start a winery and, uh, this is what you get. And, and so it's really, uh, it's it, the conversation that, that is Hermit Woods is about, is not just about wine and things fermentable, but it's about the culture that we've created, uh, by, by being together, by caring about this and having a passion for this and, and, uh, and sharing that passion, both in the form of the, the liquid that we create, as well as the relationship that we have with each other and with our guests. I love and, that. And I don't know, yeah, Adam, if you've I'll... had a chance
1: to to mine our website or anything, but we make very unconventional wine. And um,
0: well, that's it, why we're talking. Yes, I have. It started. Have, and, it, yeah. It
1: started, like Bob said, there is a you know a love of fermenting and, and making beer, and and then I got a really into making mead, and. Uh, My wife and I bought an old farmhouse here in central New Hampshire and a bunch of fruit trees and berries on the property. And our son found some old beehives in the barn. So we set up beehives. So we had good pollinators for our garden and access to fresh honey. And the previous owner had planted some cold hardy hybrids, some Marischal Foch grapes back in 1970 for the first winery, legal winery in the state of New Hampshire, and uh, those had wow. laid fallow for, for 10 years prior to me buying the, the old farmhouse in 2003. So anyway, I had all this fermentable materials on the property and Bob and Chuck and I started down this adventure of, of trying to make wine. And we were importing grapes, buying grapes from, from California, from Chile and, and um, crushing them up and, and learning the process of making wine and and, and really, in a nutshell, we, we realize, of course, that the, the winemaker gets to, to nuance the process, uh, the, the yeast, the temperature, the, the barrel aging, the, the press times, the maceration times, all, all those different things that you get to, to do as a winemaker. But really, it's the, the quality of the fruit really dictates and sets in motion the biggest aspect of what the resulting wine is going to be. And we realize that, of course, there are certain geographic regions on the planet where vinifera grapes grow superlatively and not New Hampshire, not New England.
0: (laughs) So we flipped
1: it on its head.
0: I'm glad you noticed that. We turned it
1: around and we said, all right, what grows exceptionally well here on its own? And if we use the same approach that we would with classic vinifera grapes, could we make expressive wines that, that could cellar, that could pair well with food, that could take you down a, a magical path of the glass and enjoying that, that beverage. And we've been experimenting ever since and crafting, uh, very unique wines that speak completely of New England, but without using grapes at all in our wines.
0: So no, well, what happened to the mayor um,
1: I, I now have a guy who's, who's really into, um, working with old vines in a completely okay. natural hands-off format and i've donated my vineyard to him to to deal with and uh, he just harvested a few
2: weeks ago you have to keep in perspective it's a vineyard of mm, 20 to 30 vines so not commercially viable in any way at all
0: got it and now those uh, i mean so we won't talk very long about those but i heard about them is this the are they are they being sprayed with anything at all
1: no, they haven't been, so this, they haven't been is... sprayed at all ever, which is, you know, something that I really like. And it's something that, that Bob and Chuck and I really enjoy with, with our food and with our beverages is to, to work with stuff that grows naturally well on its own. You, you don't need sprays for right. wild blueberries. You don't need sprays for rhubarb. <laughs> you know, there's, and if you don't want a perfectly spherical, shiny, beautiful looking apple, you don't need any sprays for the apples either and they'll make damn good cider right. or wine.
0: Right. I,
2: one of the, the things that we did in our in our experimenting in the early days when this really was just a hobby was we planted 120 vines of hybrid grapes that uh, Marcel Foch was, was included in that as well. And we grew that vineyard in on my property uh, nearby for five or six years. But one of the things that we learned, other than the fact that that at least I can speak for myself when I say I'm not a farmer, <laughs> um, the, the Marcel, Marcel Foch and other hybrid grapes, although they've been developed such that they will grow in colder climates, nonetheless, this part of the world is not an ideal climate for these types of fruit. And, and for that reason most growers in the Northeast who are growing uh, hybrid grapes are spraying them. And that's the only way they're able to make a successful vineyard work. There are, there actually is only one exception that I know of for sure. And there's a new, there's a guy that Ken is working with now that is, that is uh, working very hard to, to, uh, to duplicate what, what that the, the exception that I was going to refer to in Vermont there's a is a woman in Vermont called uh, she started a, a winery called Garage East and she does she's known throughout the country for for the work she's done doing uh, growing organic hybrid fruit but she's got to be one of the best farmers there is she's
0: exceptional <laughs> I, ju- I just spent September working with her
2: <laughs> okay <So laughs> there you go. And so, you know, um, there's very few farmers that are at her caliber and understand what she understands about, about the fruit. And, and for that reason, there are very few farmers growing hybrid grapes organically.
0: Right. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I, so, I mean, this is all good stuff. I'm glad to hear all this. Um, I, I want to, I, if, if I can talk about your website for a second, because I think it's kind of like what obviously hooked me in, but. It sounds like what you guys are doing is more foraging than farming. Is that correct?
1: Well, we do some foraging, but um, it's a small percentage of what we actually use for our our base materials. We source from a lot of different farmers. So we work closely with a lot of farmers. And some of those farmers do use sprays. Um, Some do not. Um, Uh Uh-huh. We, the, the largest crop that we ferment are wild blueberries from down East Maine. And so these uh-huh. are uh, a wild product that is harvested mechanically and by hand and then um, cleaned, sorted, and flash frozen to a deep temperature. So we, we purchase 20, 20,000 pounds of frozen right. blueberries, which is great because I get to go through a cold soak maceration as they thaw <laughs> and to extract right, all sorts right, of great, yeah. great flavors and, and nuances. From the area. Yeah,
0: I've done that with I have a little front yard vineyard here. And, you know, of course, for whatever reason, there's only, you know, a few, you know, similar to you guys with just like a, a over a dozen vines or more. And of course, they all ripen at different times, yeah. you know. So it's like I'm picking. I'll pick like a gallon and stick it in the freezer, and pick another gallon to get in the freezer. And then when they're all about ready, pick the rest. And then I use those gallons to like keep the must cool, <laughs> you know. Just keep dropping in these gallons of frozen grapes. In a that's it. Way. That's exactly um, that's exactly
1: how I got started with this whole process. Adam was my own blackberries in my yard, and getting out early in the morning before the birds would get to the first the, the ones that ripened. And those would go into a freezer bag, and I'd do that every day or every other day for a couple of weeks until I got all perfectly ripe blackberries. Because, you know, just like in the grape world, you need fruit that's phenolically ripe, that's, that's perfect. That's how you make good wine.
0: Right, right. Well, when you say, you know, some of the farmers spray things... I mean, obviously you can spray organic substances. Are they, I mean, are you working with both organic and non-organic farmers? Some or are organic,
1: some yeah. are non-organic. Um, most of them just sort of follow a smart, you know, best practices format because sprays are uh-huh. expensive and they're sure. toxic. And yet the livelihood of the farmer is dependent on the their, their crop. So um, right. some of them will, will use... Uh, sprays at different times and I don't have the litany of the different chemicals, the timing, or all the aspects of, of what goes on. The the farmers are the expert, they've made their choices and I'm sort of at their mercy. I pick and choose to work with farmers that I respect philosophically. Um, and they're all they're all a right. little different in how they do things.
0: Right. Well no I, you say I would like probably to can, point out. You, you mentioned
2: go. foraging uh, in the very early days of the winery. A lot oh, yeah. of our fruit came from from foraging. Uh, we we each of us would have various areas or or uh, types of fruit that we had had access to, and we were dealing with small enough quantities in the early days that we could forage for for much of our fruit. We're dealing with volumes now that just just uh, it's it's very difficult to, to forage the quantities that we need find the time to do it there are still uh, a couple fruits that we use that are that are only uh, uh, brought into our winery through our own foraging uh, like rose hips the rosa rugosa uh, plant uh, the only way we can get that fruit is to go and and forage for it because it doesn't exist in a commercial way in a fresh fruit form. So, right, so yeah. there's still some foraging going on, but not. Uh, we can't do it at the scale we need to 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 make the size batches we're making.
0: Yeah, yeah, we're at about we're at about
2: four thousand cases annual production.
0: Got it. Yeah, that's yeah, that's significant. That'll that'll outstrip the local woods um, <laughs> pretty quick. <laughs> Uh, so you're, um, I, and I want to get into that. I want to get into some of like your fermentation specifically, especially rose hips, because I'm kind of fascinated sure. by that. I've worked with that a little bit, but um, just to, more on the foundational level, like this approach that you guys take of just like looking rather than, you know, what the, uh, I don't even know how to describe it, but like what wine that we i think before we start examining things and asking the questions that you guys are asking you're just given spoon fed this idea of wine that is vinifera right everywhere around the planet it's vinifera um what was it that made you you know shift in that thinking other than just, you know, it was, you weren't getting great grades from California and Chile or, or, you know, did, were there philosophical things that you encountered or just, I don't know, was there a moment or a series of moments that led to that? And, and have you encountered conflict in, in this thing? I mean, you do say you're proudly contrarian. you know, Yeah. I,
1: I, I'll, I'll answer it for myself anyway. And I know Bob and Chuck have their own ideas and perspectives and all of this, but for me, uh, I, as a geologist, it it, it seems to me there are, there are always much larger forces at play than we understand. And as humans, we, we feel like we, we can control stuff and we get in there and we, we grow monocrops and we figure shit out and, and it's a mistake and it's delusional, and in my opinion. And so yeah. when we were making wine from imported grapes and I you know, quickly realize, wow, the, the the character of this fruit really dictates the the final product. I can nuance it a little bit, but it's it's really the fruit that matters. And we live in an area where that fruit doesn't grow. And even though the fruit grows in different parts of the world, there are only a few places where that fruit grows exceptionally well. Where you have the 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 Burgundy, the the Napa Cab. You you have certain areas where where grapes. Grow exceptionally well, the, the Chenin Blanc in South Africa, and so it makes sense. You well, mean viniferic? What's grapes.
0: That? You mean viniferic? Yeah, all grapes. these viniferic
1: grapes. So, so what? It, it, it really dawned that instead of you know trying to trying to force something in with these hybrids or import stuff that's soaked in diesel, shipping all the way across the country or, or across an ocean. Why don't we look at what grows exceptionally well right here? It just seems philosophically to make so much more sense. We're going to be expressive of what is here. We're going to work with our environment. We're going to stay close and local all the way through to the finished product. And we will be able to capture the uniqueness of New England, not by trying to force hybrids to grow here, but by looking at at wild blueberries and looking at rhubarb you can't kill the stuff here it just pops up out of the ground grows. so that just made a a lot of sense and i really i really have we've kept to that all the way through so so many people say oh why don't you use blood oranges or avocados or mangoes it's like well that's not really what grows here and that so for me that really is the thing that drives me every day i wake up excited to ferment something new or, or see what the hell kiwi berries will do under a carbonic maceration. It's, that's, that's (laughs) the fun. And it's a total frontier. There's no, there's no pathway. There's nobody else doing this that we know of, because I'd love to compare notes if someone else is, 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 is,
0: (laughs) is, you know,
1: picking rose hips and table ripening them and then, and then putting them through carbonic or pseudo carbonic maceration and fermenting them.
0: So you are treating rose hips like like apples, essentially, letting them go through a milling process, and then before sort of crushing them and foraging them. Sorry, you are treating rose hips like apples, then, sort of like the way that you would pick apples, but then let them sit around for a couple of weeks. A little bit, no, soften. it's not
1: that long. It's not like like sweating apples. Okay. It's um, it's it's it has to do with the process of foraging and the time involved and trying to get the harvest and the way rose hips ripen. Um, by the time they're fully ripe, they're so soft that when you go to pick them, you kind of smear them off the plant. And so they're picked a little bit under ripe. And then it takes just a day to three or four days for them to fully ripen. And then they get frozen. Uh, they get uh, de- they de destemmed it. and then frozen, which is a real pain, but... It's, it's it's worthwhile. I tried <laughs> fermenting them without destemming them, and it's a inferior product. So I go through the trouble of plucking all those sticky, spiky ends off them.
0: <laughs> oh, so the stem or like the, the, it's, pedals, the leftover, like it's the leftover it's the
2: leftover petals on the on the end, okay. and also the stem itself.
0: Got it. And the stem itself. Got it. Okay.
2: I I yep. just want to add to to your question about you know why why we went down this road. Yeah, please. Um, we're in New Hampshire, and it it became it was really clear to us in the very early days of coming up with this idea together that the idea of bringing grapes from all around the world to New Hampshire to as we said make somebody else's wine made no sense as a business model, and in for many other reasons, um, certainly not for our for environment you know from an environmental standpoint. Um, and not from a quality standpoint uh, in terms of wanting to make the best quality wine. Uh, a harvester who harvests grapes in California will harvest the grapes early in the morning and have them in the crusher to stemmer before the sun comes up in some cases um, because the freshness of the fruit out of the vineyard is, is key to, the, to a successful wine. So putting it on a truck and driving it 3,000 miles across the country and uh and coating it in a bath of of uh, so, of uh of chemicals to to uh to keep them fresh uh doesn't make any sense and so <laughs> uh that was the main reason and a lot of wineries do this and there's wineries all over new england who who their their entire production is based on imported fruit and we didn't want to be part of that part of that right. process and we weren't farmers and so starting a starting a vineyard and growing hybrid grapes and becoming good enough farmers to do that in an organic way really wasn't feasible in the early days. We didn't have the land, we didn't have the the technology or the skills. And and so the only thing left to us was to think about what grows here. And I share all of the same ideas that Ken and I think probably Chuck would say the same that, that uh, what a, what a cool thing that we have this great fruit that grows here and that we can turn that fruit into a wine that we can enjoy in the same way we would enjoy a a, a cab from California or a Saint-Gervais from Italy or a, or a, 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 a pinot noir from burgundy and and so that became our mission is you know we all we all had had the opportunity to try great wines from around the world and and, and some of those wines are what we really enjoyed drinking and so how how do we how do we take the fruit that grows here and instead of making what is most commonly grown and made here when you work with the local fruit which is usually a sweeter um, beverage that is uh, more unlike classic wine than it is like um, how can we take that same fruit and craft something that is that is going to satisfy the same kinds of interest to us as as would be satisfied by a classic that's that's that's
1: part of the key here too adam that that may not be conveyed is that we don't make typical fruit wine we make we make wine that tastes like wine but wine that you've never had before because it's not made out of a grape that you're familiar with or a region you're familiar with it's 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 like vinifera based wines they're they're dry they're age worthy they're well structured they pair well with food they they do all those things that 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 wines do and i mean we wouldn't be down this path if it didn't actually work. You know, it was those early days when we were fermenting zucchinis and and tomatoes and blackberries and Japanese knotweed and, you know, all sorts of crap that, you know, some of that was, was plonk. It wasn't something that we could pursue, but when we started working with various fruits that did work, I was like, well, crap, you don't have to sweeten the hell out of this to make mouthfeel. You don't have to deaden all the aromatics and, and notes by adding a ton of sugar. If you're selective in in your fruit you can make a dry wine that has body that has mouth fill that has structure that that is wine and um and that's yeah. what keeps that's what's so compelling about this is it actually works and there's not there's no secret to it it's it's straight out we we put all our information out there we publish it i give talks on it we're open source, ready to share it all, give it all away, to to foster the utilization of what grows locally with you. If you work with it, as opposed to trying to force it to be something, you can you can actually make some really you know enticing, satisfying, interesting products. So, yeah. So
2: just uh, just a, a few months ago. Ken and I were invited to an annual event that's been happening now in the East for seven years. A uh, wine writer down in Maryland or Pennsylvania um, brings together who he feels are, are the best winemakers on the East uh, every, every year to put on a symposium where winemakers can be in a room together and share their knowledge and share their wines with each other and talk about those wines and pick them apart and and, and talk about what's working and not working. And for the first time in this symposium's history, uh, somebody showed up with wines on the table that weren't made from grapes. It had right. never happened before. And, and we had a chance to share our wines side by side with some fabulous uh, white and red and rosé wines from all over the East Coast, from as far far north as uh, New Hampshire and Maine, and as far south as Virginia, and uh, and and Ken's wines were able to hold their own in a crowd of very serious wine drinkers. So, I think that speaks volumes about how far we've come of creating a beverage that can be taken seriously on the same table as as classic vinifera or hybrid wines that have been made for years, decades.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'd take it even further than you guys and point out that, you know, when you talked about Cab from Napa and Sangiovese from Italy and Pinot from Burgundy, uh, one of those isn't actually from there. (laughs) And yeah, California doesn't have vinifera natively. And, you know, so I'm working with things like prickly pear in my winemaking out here and and, uh, pomegranate and lemon because they do really well here as well. Um, But yeah it's uh, I, I'm fully on board with that approach. I think it's revolutionary. I, I'm really excited to to talk to you guys because of that. I mean there's a, you know one of my favorite producers of wine in Texas is making wine from also prickly pear but also mesquite and juniper and uh, Texas persimmons awesome. you know so he's, he's and, and he's just literally just foraging those on his ranch you know uh, in Texas. That's- um, on his family's That's ranch great. there, so just That's great. really t- asking the same question as you, like what's already here and doing well, and let's let's turn that into something beautiful and show what this place actually tastes like, as opposed to somebody else's wine from somewhere else made in their style, you know? Exactly. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah, it, it seems so obvious once you stumble upon those questions, you know. <laughs> um, but that ah uh, the the giant question on your website of does it have to be a grape? So. Uh, when you started down this path, I mean, it sounds like you've built something where you have a following and and a reputation that is supporting a decent business. But when you started down this path, what was it like? Was it rocky getting out there? Was it a lot of individual (laughs) education?
1: You know, we actually are. We're actually adrenaline junkies. We like mountain biking off the cliffs. We like sailing on the edge of high winds. We like skiing off
2: steep slope, So it, I no, it's not really been rocky.
0: <laughs> nice. All right. <laughs> well, like the, the other
2: side of that question is, or the other side of that coin is, um, well, it's whatever it was, it still is. <laughs> the, right. the world is not, uh, is not throwing open their arms for, uh, for the, the latest and greatest wine made from kiwi berries and, and rose hips. So it's, you know, the, the the way in which we've had to convince the world that that we had something to offer 10 years ago when we were operating out of my basement and out of my master bedroom um, is still the way to this day that we have to, person by person, uh, as they come through the doors of our winery, help them see the world in a different way. and. And uh, and I don't know that we're ever going to be without that challenge, that our business is always going to be sort of hinged on our ability to keep the keep beating this drum and keep getting uh, uh, getting the word out there that that everything doesn't have to be Cab Merlot and Chardonnay, uh, that there 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 are other ways to uh, enjoy a fine beverage with with dinner than uh, than those three. And uh, it's. It, I think it will be an uphill battle till till we're long gone and buried. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Have you noticed any changes at all in whether it's generational acceptance or anything else, yes. or just yes? Like, uh, oh, okay, absolutely,
2: oh, yeah. yes. And and there's some good news on the horizon. Um, I think younger people today are far more open to the, the concept of craft beverages and and the experimentation that goes along with it in the modern day. And I think that's for a lot of different reasons, uh, not the least of which the craft beverage industry is on a boom right now and has been for the last 10 or 20 years. Um, there's there's craft breweries on a scale that hasn't been the, uh, in effect since pre-prohibition. There's, there's meaderies that are taken off like crazy. We went from having maybe 50 in the whole country to having you know in, in close to close to a thousand or more wineries, and there's there's uh, uh people experimenting with hybrid grapes like never before there's people experimenting with with fruit like we're we're doing and so i think the craft beverage industry is, has really busted open this idea especially for younger people who have an open mind who haven't had their their minds corrupted by the by the, uh, the 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 old stodgy few who think that wine is only made in France by french people and right. and uh, and and so so yeah that, that that door is opening up and what's also been exciting is is that more and more people on a larger scale the media the wine media has gradually begin to uh, begun to accept this as part of the conversation whereas 10 years ago it was Really unheard of to hear a major wine uh, media outlet willing to talk about in any kind of seriousness wine made from things other than grapes. And now I see that I see it happening on a on a pretty regular basis. I, I'll tell you a, a just a real quick story, and I'm not going to identify the media outlet, but there was a national media outlet that sent a reporter to New Hampshire to spend a week doing a story on wine in New Hampshire. And the reporter that they selected to do the story was someone who did not drink alcohol. (laughs) So this, this, this was, I mean, this spoke volumes to me about the level of seriousness that the national media took wineries in New Hampshire, because (laughs) it wasn't about the wine at all, it was entirely (laughs) about the experience, the tasting bar, the the traveling the uh right, you know the tourism, the tourism aspect, piece right of it, yeah. not the not the beverage so fascinating oh so yeah uh, so there is there is hope and uh and the, <laughs> the the fight seems to be uh you know a little less challenging but i think uh i think we're going to have to keep keep working very hard to uh to to create an openness and a and a willingness for the larger population to begin to see and understand that not everything has to be made from from grapes
0: yeah, that's great. Well, let's talk about some of your ferments. Like what are some of the fun things that you guys really are, that are that do really well for you?
1: Um, you mean in when you say do well for us, it means in terms of the resulting liquid that we like to drink, number of sales, ease of fermentation, <laughs> what uh,
0: I yeah, all of the above. I guess uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, I'd Lake love to hear <laughs>
2: Talk about Lake House White. Talk about Red Scare. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. you've you've got some wines that are just they're just you know, people yeah. who walk into our winery who have spent their entire life thinking that grape wine is the only wine and that it's only made in in the wine regions of the world will walk in the door and discover Lake House White or Red Scare or, or some of our other wines and and have their minds blown. And yeah, so yeah that's that's that's, that's a good that's a good format. So.
1: So a little background, Adam. Um, all the wines that we make are made like a red wine. So they're all full fruit ferments with everything, stems, skins, seeds, format. And we end up with whites, roses, and reds because of the amount of red skin that's included in the ferment. So it's really the materials that, that dictate that. And Lake House White <coughs> is a, a really a nice example, an, an excellent example of where individual fruits on their own produce a a mediocre kind of wine so if you take a peach and you Mm -hmm. ferment it you get a wine that's okay but nothing like a vinifera based wine the the individual fruit just doesn't have enough in it to create that magic that some of the vinifera grapes do when -hmm. you combine a couple fruits, just like you might do with a Roan Red blend, you end up taking those holes that are in some fruits and filling them with others, and then you start to grab some of the magic that that happens. So Lake House White is is a was a long process to to be now where I feel pretty comfortable about how it's going to evolve and how it's going to come out, but it's. It's four different components that come ripe at much different times during the growing season. Um, the first is rhubarb, which isn't even a fruit, and it pops right. out early here in New England, so it's harvested and cleaned and chopped and frozen. And then peaches, and you know people don't really think about New England as being a place for good-tasting peaches, but when the peaches grow, when the season is ripe, right, for peaches in New Hampshire there's some of the best tasting peaches around that uh, that I've ever had from lots of different places so peaches make up a good component of it and then there're the wild forged rose hips that come right after those two and the rosa rugosa grows wild all over the place here it it it, it likes crappy soil and and grows extremely well on the seashore and sandy soils with with salty rich airs blowing through it and so we go and we harvest a bunch mm-hmm. of rose hips and then the final component which is critical is is a quince and quince is an old new mm-hmm. england standard fruit because it's super high in pectin before knots uh, figured out that that boiling horse hooves could create gelatin and jams were no longer <laughs> vegan before that people would grow up uh quince tree and then they could harvest their strawberries and throw a little quince in it and they would have enough pectin to set that fruit into a jam or jelly and quince Mm -hmm. is you know extremely astringent lots of flavor very aromatic um most chefs turn it into a into a paste that's very tasty and um and Mm -hmm. it's a critical component for this lake house white so those four components each one on its own is okay but pretty singular note it's like somebody just hitting a couple of keys on a on a keyboard and when you combine the four together in the in a good ratio you get this the the magic of you know a a good chardonnay or a blanc or some some vinifera based thing where you get nuance and, and intrigue and the flavors pull you along and it's and it's done as a as a you know, a bone dry, barrel aged wine. Um, I have to the way I describe it when I give talks is I sort of create a grape in my in my mind. Um and then physically <laughs> the 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 individual fruits don't have enough sugar to create, you know, 22, 24 bricks to get the alcohol that we want. The individual fruits may not have enough juice. A so Rosa rugosa, <laughs> rose is is pasty. There's not much juice in there. Yeah. And then, contrary to that, the the quince, if you were to press and ferment straight quince juice, it would be so damn flavorful and astringent. It's it's too intense, so it needs to be watered down. So I sort of work mm-hmm. with with the fruits and veggies, water, and some sort of fermentable to to craft something that comes together. It's very it's very beer brewing in nature and that's where my roots Mm -hmm. are. So I've got, you know, different components that I'm going to bring together. So every one of the wines that we put together at at Hermit Woods is a combination of different variables that I can play with. The amount of water that I use, the amount of fermentable sugar that I use, the type of yeast or that I use the, and the type of fruit or or other materials that I use.
0: And you guys are, Pretty minimal. You're pretty minimal in your interventions, as I, I understand from your website. At least is that? I mean, are you doing? Does it naturally go through malolactic? That Lake House. So wide,
1: malo's is or... a really fascinating thing, and I've I've been working with with that for since the beginning. Uh, and yeah, and it. What's interesting is um, most of the fruits that I deal with have a tremendous amount of citric acid. And uh-huh. citric spots out just below Malik on a paper chromatography. They're pretty close and they smear over one another. And yeah. of course the citric isn't going to go change through. Bacteria. So some of the wines, some of the wines I, I try to put them through MLF and some, I don't the lake house white. I split in half and this is kind of like, um, some of the things that's done in, in Chateauneuf and, and elsewhere where some of the wines will be yeah. barrel aged and some of the wines will stay in a neutral tank to preserve some of the yeah, fresh fruitiness. Yeah. And then those are blended. Um, so the Lake House White, about half of it, it gets barrel aged and my, all my barrels are saturated with, with mallow, but some of it, there's a small change in the, size of the malic spot and the size of the lactic spot on paper chromatography, but I don't, and I don't send stuff out to a lab. I don't really care. In the end, it's, it's about the taste of the wine and over the years, ricocheting along, trying different things. I really like where the Lake House White has, has gone. I mean, Chuck, Chuck was in my basement. Remember that first ferment of Rose Hips, Chuck, down in the basement?
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: it's disgusting. <laughs> this this weird mass of floating little white seeds in this this barrel. And, but it it's it's somehow has, has worked out. And again I come back to the to you know the the quality of the, the, the ingredients that that allow this this person to sort of foster something
2: to come Good. out something you're something you're saying kind of ringing a couple of bells for me that have been really interesting to me as we've gone along um right from the beginning you talk about you know trying to be you know not to intervene too much and, and not to use uh chemistry in the process you know at at times along the way we we boy we could really use some more tannin and and of course you can buy tannin in, a, in the form of a powder and just add it to your right. wine but well, we don't and, do that um, there are lots of yeah and so early on ken's like well we need to find something like i mean we discovered these uh, autumn berries that that were really astringent and had had lots of tannin and then we were we discovered this tea that was this indian tea it's made from sumac and and steeping these sumac flowers in in liquid to to extract the tannins because they're very high in tannin and 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 using that in some of the recipes and So building the recipes out of the fruit and the ingredients that exist in nature and in the wilds and not not being tempted to just go to the store and buy the the additives necessary to build build the wine that you're trying to make. Yeah, that's a a great point,
1: because there is there is no acid adjustment. There are no tannic powder added. There's none of that that goes on. Uh, Just just trying to understand what the what the fruit brings to the glass from this area.
2: And the other thing that brings brings to mind is, you know, watching Ken over the years, uh, you know, at this point, wine takes a long time, you know, and we have about 30 or 35 different wines that we produce every year. Um, uh, only a handful of those are at, at a large scale. A lot of them are a much smaller scale. But um, nonetheless, that's that's 35 wines a year. Um, wh- what we're doing isn't being done anywhere else. There's nobody to ask, you know, how does this work? Or how do you <laughs> How do you change this? Or, how, you know, if you change this, what will happen? So at 35 wines a year, it's going to take decades or more <laughs> to figure out what works and doesn't work, what makes sense and doesn't make sense. And there's there's no history to, to, to feed into this. So, right. so Ken has come up with this great process where, you know, a good example, I, I, I just to make it easy to talk about, he'll... He'll create four open top fermenters of blueberries to produce our, our petite blue, and each of those open tops might might experience a, a, a different yeast. So we get four different yeasts affecting the wine, and then pulled off as a carboy, and he'll follow that carboy through the entire year to see what that one yeast did to that to that blueberry, and yeah. and then we'll have. So, you know, one variable at a time. We'll have one year, he'll have four different yeasts, and what do they do to the fruit? One year might be four different press strategies or maceration strategies or, uh, you know, any number of things. And you, Ken, you can speak to it. But so what Ken has ultimately done is because of multiplying each batch by all of these smaller batches, Ken's made thousands of wines. We've been doing this only for, you know, commercially for 12 years, and he's literally probably made. Uh, well over a thousand wines, so that we can speed up the learning process that's going into uh, figuring out how do you put these things together in a way that that makes a really lovely product. Right, that, 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 that made yeah, a huge That difference. really was
1: one of the biggest frustrations early on. Adam was that so many of these wines need you know five years to ten years to see see what yeah. they're what they're going to do, and coming from the brew standpoint where I could brew a beer and three weeks right. later I could know what it's going to taste like or three months later, that's fine. Right. I can adjust it make make some changes to the formulation and do it again and see what it's like. But with wine, if I got to wait 10 years, five years for something to, to show itself, I'm going to be in trouble. So this was my way of accelerating that. I'm, I'm 61 years old and I, and I needed to be able to move this forward as quickly as possible and so I have 100 or 120 different containers that I ferment and age in, and they all have something in them at some point in time. And that's that's been my method of exploring and tweaking different variables that Bob talked about to try to put this together. And fortunately, another, we, another fortunately we've created a, a culture. There is There are no expectations for what we're going to produce out of Hermit Woods other than really tasty, unique products. And so that leaves it open. So I remember when yeah. when our Petite Blue Reserve, Ray Isle from Food & Wine Magazine called it out as the best craft beverage in the state of New Hampshire. And my wife likes our Petite Blue and she goes, there, now, see that? This, you nailed it. Now you're just going to do that again, right? And I'm like, no, 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 I think I can make it better. <laughs> I'm
2: going to change it. <laughs> 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 the other thing that also comes to mind is in the early days, to give it to, to shine some light on on the way in which Ken had to figure this out. Um, you, we obviously have to capitalize uh, most, if not all of our wines in some way. We need uh, alternative fermentables. The, the Brix levels of most of the fruit that, that grows here in the northeast uh, hover around 10, 12, 14, you know, we're really lucky 18 Brix. Um, uh, there's a couple of exceptions, kiwi berries being one of them. But since right out of the gate, we knew we were gonna have to find some fermentable sugar. uh, We started the process by making sugar wine. If we're gonna add sugar to our ferments to bring the alcohol up, we need to know what that sugar is contributing. So Ken made sugar wines, beet wine, corn syrup wine, cane sugar wine, corn sugar wine, all these various sugars that we could get our hands on in 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 volume and we added the sugar to water and he added pitch to yeast and fermented it out to finish to dry and bottled it and aged the bottles for three or four months so that we could uncork them and say okay this is what sugar makes and (laughs) make the best possible decisions about what sugar additions we're going to put in our wine so that we get the least contribution of flavor and aroma from the sugar, and we get just alcohol. And then the flavor and aroma that the wine is is producing is going to come from the fruit.
0: Right on. That's very smart. So, and do you, so you do have to capitalize still for most part. You haven't. You're not adding. There, there isn't enough sugar in just the correct, fruit correct. combination. Yeah. So
1: when I when yeah, I build this grape, it. that's one of the variables is the added fermentable sugar, especially when I dilute something. You know, an elderberry is a super intense little fruit with very little juice. And so I may right. use, you know, a couple kilos per per few liters of, of liquid or of water. Now I've diluted, it's 10 bricks down to two. So now I've got to add some sort of fermentable sugar to bring it up. And like Bob said, it turned out that dextrose, the corn sugar derivative is just creates pure ethanol. The yeast are happy with it. So that's an additive that goes in during fermentation. And what, what then happened, Adam, was I realized, well, I don't have to add all this sugar at once. I don't have to add all this water at once. I don't have to add this fruit all at once. So instead of just picking grapes at ripeness and crushing them and fermenting them, the yeast have to handle 24 bricks. They have to handle their environment that they're in. I can actually coax them along any way I want. So I will mm-hmm. often start off, I have a, let's say I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a, a wine with, with a, let's say I'm gonna do Lake House White. And so I have these ingredients mm-hmm. and I'm gonna use a certain amount of water and a certain amount of sugar. Well, I can add the bulk of the water right at the beginning and dilute the natural sugars. And I can let the native yeast or I can pitch a commercial yeast and let that start to work, acclimate, absorb all the nutrients, and then I can introduce, let's say I'm going to add, you know, hundred kilos of, of dextrose. I don't have to add it all at once. So I can add it in portions every other day or every few days, depending on how the yeast are, are doing their, their thing. I can coax them along and I don't get mm-hmm. tremendous temperature stresses on the yeast and it ends up building mouthfeel. It builds weight in the finished product early on. When I made a blueberry wine, I took blueberries, I took water and I took a bunch of sugar and threw them in a vat and stirred it up and threw some yeast on it. And I ended up with this hollow, terrible blueberry wine. But then when I started building the wine, coaxing the yeast along through the fermentation, I got to total dryness and now I had mouthfeel. I had weight. It was, it worked out great. And, so that's the way I build and ferment a lot of the wines, and I and I give talks about this approach, this process of of uh, building a grape and and a, a sort of a sequential or staged uh, sugar addition to the fermentation.
0: Wild, yeah, that's fascinating. Well, and then I was going to ask just on the t- since we're on the technical side, do you? And this is kind of what I was leading to with my question about. MLF was do you have to stabilize it then in any way like do you have to cold crash it or I mean do you are you doing normal so I don't have any tartrates
1: like to worry about at all um, uh-huh. and I'm in the midst well I have been in the midst for <laughs> experimenting on the on the hot side stability with proteins with bentonite so I have used uh-huh. bentonite for heat, heat stability but I'm not sure that I really need to do that there are a couple wines I know I don't need to do that on so I'm I'm working through my repertoire of different wines to see if I can, um, eliminate that. Um, yeah, the wines that I back sweeten. So if I have a, a really tangy cranberry based wine that, that is going to get back sweetened, I will sterile filter that, um, just as mm-hmm. a commercial entity to, to protect it from exploding in somebody's trunk. Um, mm-hmm. Right, but that's it. I use a little bit of sulfur uh, at low levels to stabilize the wine through bottling. Um, uh, that's about it.
0: Any, uh, you doing any sparklers or just all uh, still? There,
1: we do some stills. I have a, a small bright tank to force carbonate, we make some hard cider that I force car- carbonate. Um, I've done oh, okay. some pet nats, but I didn't enjoy the results, so we don't do those commercially. There's a winery nearby us, Flag Hill, that has a Charmat tank, so we send some of our cuvées over there to get up to five bars to have a, a more intensely sparkled product.
0: Okay, majority majority still? still or okay. So you well, you talked about the the Lake House White. What about the Red Scare? Can you want to break that sure. one down too? <laughs> I
1: love I love how Bob <laughs> throws out a couple of my favorite wines that, and it, I think <laughs> I think and rightfully so they're they're wines that really create um, a, something where the sum is greater than the parts that go into it. Um, mm. Red Scare is a, a delightful dry red wine. Mm. Uh, the somewhat somewhat similar to a burgundy, but it's got its own character. It's really briar briar fruit forward in its aromatics and flavor profile. It's, it is a mead, but it's a dry mead. Um, there are some complex sugars in the honey that don't ferment out. So the final gravity mm-hmm. is a little bit higher than the wines that I produce with just water and dextrose. Those have a final mm-hmm. gravity of 992 or 994 and red scare will be at 998 or 1. So there is a a perception of sweetness from the honey aromatics and that's melded with the dark fruits. It's a combination of blueberries and blackberries in equal proportions and then about 15%, 10 to 15% black raspberries, which are a very intense, very aromatic fruit. Um, okay. it's not a hundred percent honey as the added fermented sugars um, I didn't like the too much of the strong honey notes coming through so uh, about five or six years ago I carved out a little bit of the honey and replaced that with dextrose to make something a little bit okay. more balanced in its flavor profile okay. uh, the name came from a ultimate frisbee team my son was playing on his freshman year in college because he's he's the guy that set up the beehives in my backyard and this was when i forged my own blackberries blueberries and black raspberries on my property that was the first vintage in 08 and so it's been called red skin oh, ever wow. since
0: oh well wow. so it's just the three berries it's the three berries uh, honey the sugars, waters
1: and a little honey. bit of sugar it's uh fermented dry barrel aged in uh, fairly neutral french oak barrels the there's not enough malic in there for it to to go through any sort of mallow um it generally barrel ages from 12 to 18 months depending on the vintage and um it's unfiltered and bottled
0: beautiful i love that now i'm looking at you have this beautiful page on your website that gives visuals of a lot of the ingredients that you work with and just wanted to like get, list some. Well, the kiwi berry, I'm really interested to know more about. Um, but things like green tomato, not weed, and daylily really oh, interest me are, as well. Yeah, <laughs> those are all
1: those are all good things. I'll start with the kiwi berry. Um, yeah. There are, I think, 23 or 27 different types of kiwi on the planet, and one of them is called a cold hardy kiwi berry, and it's like a zone nine fruit. So it'll grow in very cold right. climates and may have originated in Siberia or something like that, but it's all over new England. Right. It grows here. In fact, the state of Massachusetts wanted to uh, register it as an invasive species because it was tearing down some old <laughs> old growths and old historic buildings in the Berkshires. But, um, that, that didn't yeah, pass a, fortunately. Mine, right? And there are people that grow it commercially. Um, so it grows in, in tough conditions. It grows like a grape. It's a, got a, a vine. You need like one male plant for every six or eight females. Um, uh-huh. The berries are like a large grape size, like a Gamay grape or something that has a smooth skin. You cut it open and it's green with little black seeds and tastes just like a kiwi that you have from California or something. They can reach right. up to 28 bricks in New England. It's, it's a crazy high sugar variety. Typically they'll come in more in the 18 to 22 range, but it, it can go that high. There's a, there's an organic grower, this guy Dave Johnson down in Pennsylvania who has been growing these kiwi berries for three decades now. And he's done lots of grafting, lots of development. He's an organic grower. Um, we sourced from him, but we had troubles with transportation mostly. And now I work with an experimental grower at uh, University of New Hampshire, Iago. He's got 3,000 different cultivars. He's trying to figure out which ones do best in the soils of New England as a cash crop. Mm -hmm. They're super nutritious uh, fruit and they can give a good dollar to the farmers that don't wanna try to farm stony land that we have here in New England with the short growing season so the kiwi berry is um is an intense flavored fruit with very little juice per se it's very thick and snotty as a as a fruit pulp to try to get the the juice out of it but i i let the yeast do the magic for me so i like just like all my wines it's a full fruit ferment so all the kiwi berries go into the ferment i do add some water to lighten up the flavor because it's really intense on its own although i have done a hundred percent straight kiwi wines that they they lend themselves more to a to a dessert wine a sipper because they're so intense um Mm. they're very high in ascorbic acid um they they're a strange beast to work with i i'm still struggling after 15 years of working with this fruit to really nail it down this last vintage i thought I had a really good balance. It was drinking a bit like a sauv blanc. It was blended with some peaches and some rhubarb with the kiwi and those three things married together into this just gorgeous, crisp, dry white wine. And uh, no back sweetening, but it was sterile filtered and went into the bottle brilliant. And about six months later, it's throwing some strange little white crystals, which I suspect are vitamin C. And I don't know if it's from the oxalic acid in the rhubarb combining with the ascorbic acid in the kiwi. I I don't have a clue, but mm. uh, it's just a, a visual deterrent. The wine still tastes perfect, so it's not you know they're worse than than little tartaric crystals. But uh, it's it's one of these things. And okay. I've had I've had challenges. Other times I've had bottles like that that go through and they stay clear and beautiful forever. Beautiful.
0: Um, so high in ascorbic acid so you can drink your wine to avoid scurvy in the long New Hampshire <laughs> <Exactly>. winters. <laughs> you also can't use a ripper
1: method to figure out what your free SO2 is because it uh, doesn't, doesn't work. Um, gotcha. Daylilies, daylilies grow all over the place in New England, the classic orange New England daylily. They're on my dirt road where I live and I I smell them as I walk out my driveway in the morning. And one year, 10 years ago, I think 2012 was the first vintage, I made a daylily mead. So I took honey from my beehives, I took rhubarb from my garden for some natural acid, and I used daylilies from the wildflowers to add a floral note. And I literally just ferment those all together and um, it turns out to be a nice, clear wine, light-colored wine, with a very sort of summery, aromatic profile to it. So, And I've used daylilies a couple other times, too, with some, with some blends. Those I kind of dry hop. I make a straight honey wine, a mead. And then once that wine is finished fermenting, is star- yeah. stabilized and clarified, then I shove a bunch of flowers, fresh-picked flowers, into the mead and let them sit there for a while. So I do that with elderflowers like and an staghorn sumac and daylilies and wild hops and
0: mm. different gotcha. things like that.
1: What was what was That's one the of the other ones eaten. that you saw on the website?
0: Uh, like the green tomato or the knotweed? wine Okay, uh, yeah. so
1: tomatoes are great. I mean, I is a fun one to talk about. Yeah, I've had
0: a tomato wine, actually. I actually had a really interesting tomato wine once. It was perfectly clear. And tasted of tomatoes, but sweet and and was nice, like totally pleasant drinking experience. Ca- totally surprised yeah.
1: me. Uh, tomatoes are a wonderful fruit. And uh, Bob and I, when we first started this winery, Bob and I walked down to a farm that was at the bottom of the hill from his from his place, or drove down there, and and I got a chance to walk through and taste different tomatoes. And we grabbed five different types of tomatoes, and we fermented them. We made a little tomato wine our first year in business, and. I was I was always struggling because there was this really nice crisp acid rich white wine underneath stuff that smelled like like tomatoes. And right, I didn't right. want that tomato aroma cuz that's not what wines smell like. So I did lots of experiments over the years and I finally cracked it about 3 years ago. I have a farmer and I have him harvest the tomatoes just before they ripen. So they reach full mature size, but before Verizon, before they turn red, he picks them. Mm-hmm. And he confirms it every year. Ken, are you sure you want me to pick them before they're ripe? And I said, yes, Bob, I want <laughs> you to pick them before they're ripe. Pick them and freeze them. Okay, going to do it again. And that's what he does. And they ferment and they make this crisp, dry, white wine that's just lovely it's a it's a little bit like a you know when bob and chuck and i went to south africa and fell in love with Chenin blanc there it was you know it was a grape that we really didn't know well and we went right to the mothership and and it was just fantastic and this tomato wine has been kind of like that this last year we released a wine called ken's tomato folly and it's a green tomato or it I don't like to call it green tomato because there are green tomatoes that when they're fully ripe, they're green, Right, and that's not what we use. We use a a red tomato tomato that's not allowed to turn red.
0: Right. So it's an unripe,
1: (laughs) fully formed red tomato that then is fermented into this white wine that if someone tells you it's tomato, you can find tomato in it. But if no one mentions tomato, you won't find it.
0: Fascinating. Now... I mean, I was asking about knotweed. Is that an, a, a wine by itself, or does it go as an ingredient? So, into...
1: Japanese knotweed is an invasive plant that grows all over the place right. in New England, and it looks kind of like bamboo. And it's uh, when it first comes up, it's it's kind of like a bamboo shoot, and some people call it bamboo, New England bamboo. And you can eat it; it's it's an edible if you kind of harvest it like asparagus early in the spring when it's when the shoots are first coming up. Um, and it's a, it's a huge source of resveratrol. So when oh. people make and sell resveratrol pills for their antioxidant contribution, it's not made from, from grapes. <laughs> they, they may say it's just like red wine grapes, you know, the French conundrum, right. but it's actually made from <laughs> Japanese knotweed. So it's a great source of resveratrol.
0: It's also, I just want to interject, it's the base of a, a biological fungicide called regalia.
1: Oh, I've heard about that. That's right. Fascinating. Yeah, Yeah, it's Uh, great. It's, it's a great plant. And I got a bunch of it in my backyard. So, so one year (laughs) I'm like, well, okay, I'm going to turn an invasive, something that's not good, but that's healthy for you into something that's, that's a potent potable. So I harvested a bunch of, of young knotweed and I chopped it up and I fermented it with some water and sugar and yeast. And I made a white wine that tastes, that smelled just like baby wipes. (laughs) it was terrible but as my wife knows with all this experimentation she says well you know it's still kind of young why don't you just leave it downstairs and 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 see what happens and she was right about two years later bob came over i remember this bob i don't know if you do but about two years later he came over and i poured him a glass of something and didn't tell him what it was and he's like ah what is this do you remember that I do. Yeah, very much so. The baby wipe aromatic had gone away. And it uh-huh. turned into this nice There there were some vegetal notes for sure, but not not in a really strong way that just seemed like you were, you know, drinking a alcoholic smoothie. This this had turned into a
2: re- I believe I still have a bottle of that. In do you really? <laughs> No, I think so.
1: Yeah, I, I think I blew through my last bottle when that guy from the NPR was interviewing me here in the backyard. But but anyway, <laughs> the federal government, Adam, will not allow us to commercially sell a, a wine made out of Japanese knotweed. So oh, why is So I one? couldn't prove that it was that it was grass that it was generally accepted as safe. And even though there are some now places why, in it, Vermont that, that, that sell edibles. Uh, with it, they make omelets and stuff out of it. But so I went. I so went. I went that, around that. Is it and a safety concern? What's that?
0: Was it a safety concern, or what's the? That's what they said. They couldn't, I couldn't. Not...
2: The FDA doesn't recognize it as food or as a oh. consumable. Yeah.
0: Huh. It was really okay.
1: disappointing. But
0: well, and you guys probably aren't a great, you know, poster children for the effects of it either. So there's that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, what we did. What, what what's fascinating is, is raising bees here in my backyard, when the knotweed is in, in bloom in late August, the bees love it. They just, they just uh-huh. pound on these plants and bring back the nectar. And when they bring back the nectar and put up honey, it looks like molasses. It's this dark black honey. Mm-hmm. So I have a local mm-hmm. beekeeper that puts some hives near Japanese knotweed flowers and I make a knot mead every year. So I get the honey from Japanese oh. knotweed flowers. I, I have a batch right now, in fact, that just got barreled down yesterday. Bob, wait till you try this. It's it's the best batch <laughs> yet, man. It really came through great. Yeah. All of them. Yeah, this is from t- this year's Japanese knotweed. This year's knotweed Japanese running. knotweed, yeah. Aren't you glad I talked it? I'm to so you glad you, you did because, and, and it worked out <laughs> great because. <laughs> He uh he had just harvested it so it was fresh, fresh, fresh honey and it went right into the fermenter and, and
2: uh it worked out great. And I and I made uh, enough You didn't uh, happen to save any of that for me to put on my toast, did you? We
0: I mean it, there's something about those dark honeys. We we kept bees we've kept bees off and on for multiple years here in LA in our backyard and and, you know, the one thing that we loved was just seeing how the color of the honey changed through the yeah. seasons, depending on what was in bloom, you know, and you get this beautiful, like, you know, array, a you know, spectrum of colors. And we we determined that when the avocados were in bloom was when we got that, like, deep, dark chocolate honey and loved it. I mean, that was the one that that and then there was one other, the the opposite end of the spectrum was like this super thin perfumey, like floral honey. I don't, I, we could never figure out what it was. It might be the Hacarandas that bloom here, these beautiful purple flowered trees that line one of the streets in our yeah. neighborhood. Um, it might've been from that cause they're very nectary and, um, perfumey, but it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's fun to see that. I, I love that too. I used to say not weed is not a weed. <laughs> um, <laughs> Because there's so many great things about yeah you know, no so it's that's super
1: Adam I, I I fell in love with that same thing with with having bees and seeing how the the colors the color of the cap changes and then the character of the honey changes all through the season so you have multiple harvests you could do multiple harvests and vintages from one beehive for different meads through the year
0: yeah which exactly is, which is yeah. great yeah that's really amazing exciting. well what's the what is your um what do you what what is the name of your your video uh, blog vlog your weekly video cast is what I'm trying to say. So
2: you're, uh, unfortunately, we just well not unfortunately fortunately we just got our new website up and running and we because it took us two years to build the website we decided to launch the core components of the site first before the whole the putting the whole enchilada together and. And the one component that's about to be released in the next week or two will be the the history that will because there was a you could go to a page two weeks ago to our website that showed all 300 episodes that we've done but they're all on youtube so if you Search search around on youtube and i can send you a couple links and once i send you the name of the show you could search that name and find all of the episodes but I assure you, as soon as the uh, as soon as we can in the next week or two, we're going to have uh, we're going to have them all back up on our site, so you can just go to our website and and peruse all of the episodes.
0: But do you uh, want to say do you want to uh, say, wanna say that, what the web the do you want to say what the URL is or the name of the show? Well, Hermit
2: people? Woods has a u has a, a YouTube page. Oh, so it's YouTube on the Hermit channel. Woods
0: page. Got it. Okay,
2: it's on the Hermit Woods channel, the YouTube channel.
0: Got it. Okay,
2: and and the the show that we've, the, the name that we've been doing, uh, uh, building the show on is The Hermit's Live, Captivating and impassioned Stories of Crafting and Enjoying Fine Wine. So if you really? were to type that, you see the Hermit's live, you'll for or any part of that sentence, you'll probably get most of the shows popping right up.
0: <laughs> you chose a nice short, easily type into search engine name. I see.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, see, I'm a novice at this. See, I started this <laughs> just... show because uh, COVID forced us to close our winery for three months, and I was uh. desperate to connect back up with our customers. So yeah. I, within weeks of closing, began putting myself out there as wildly as I could on social media. And then, as soon as I could convince Ken and Chuck to join me, uh, the three of us started coming together every week to, to talk about everything we love, uh, most of which is involving fermentation, but not always. Uh, we, we've talked about lots of other things as well. And, um, and, and so it's evolved. And I wish I could say that I've, I've mastered it after three years, but no, I'm not even close to mastering it. And, uh, and yeah, I, I, uh, I think the title is, is in need of help. <laughs> but out of lack of time to be uh, developing a new title, I've, uh, I've lived with it for a while.
0: Well well one, one question I, I skipped over that I wanted to ask and and you because you started going down that path anyway, uh, without me even asking you, but as you discovered with not we or yeah, it was not we, The the aging actually changed it. And I'm wondering if you have any other experience with any of the other strange and unusual or less, you know, just less less experimented with berries or fruits or, you know, herbs or anything else, spices. Anything that you've worked with where you've found something profound happened as it's aged?
1: <laughs> just about all of them, actually.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> here's here's, here's, here's yeah. a good
1: one for you that I've uh, presented to a couple of winemakers, and everybody just raises their hands. The I don't know. It turns out that a wine that you make out of blueberries will eat carbon dioxide. And mm. I don't know why or how it does it, but you can ferment it and you can ferment it dry and all the carbon dioxide has gone out of that wine and it's a still dry blueberry wine. And then if it's in an environment where there's some CO2, it will absorb that CO2. And the way I discovered this was I had, this was back when we first started the winery commercially at, at Bob's house. And I had some glass carboys and I also had a few plastic carboys and I had a of tank of carbon dioxide that we would use for sparging bottles before bottling and, and stuff like that. And I um, noticed there was, there was a little bit of headspace in this plastic jug of blueberry wine. So I purged that headspace with CO2 and put the bung in. And about a week later, the wine was all the way up in the neck of this plastic carboy. And I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Hmm. So I released the bung and the bung the plastic carboy expanded back out to full size and sucked a bunch of air into the headspace i'm like oh shit, there's Hmm. air in the headspace i better clear that with co2 so i purged it out with co2 and put the bung on after about three times i'm like oh shit, it's just eating the co2 (laughs) and and i've had it where i have and this happened early on in the fermentation of blueberry wines it doesn't happen anymore and I think it has to do with mechanical punch downs and pump overs. I think the pump overs allow the CO2 to escape. So the the larger scale that I make the petit blue in now, I'm doing pump overs. But I've had cases where I'm I'm barreling down a batch of blueberry wine. It's in a French oak barrel with a bubbler on it, and it's on a stack of barrels five layers high, and the the lower level of that stack of barrels is 60 degrees Fahrenheit. And the upper level is like 75 degrees because it's warmer two stories high. And even at that right. high level for two months, 75 degrees, the CO2 is still trapped in that barrel to where if I put a spinner in it, it froths over the top. It just blows CO2 out. Huh. So that's, that's a strange one strange. that I still don't know. So whenever I'm pushing petite blue, through hoses to, does, to to clear the pump or I'm I'm bottling petit blue. Say, I don't use CO2. I I use nitrogen at all times.
0: Okay, so when you say that you it eats it, does that mean it absorbs it and it's now part of the wine? So it sort of carbonates it, it starts to
1: eat it up. If I do it enough, it does you can detect a tongue tingle to it from the CO2. Huh.
0: So so in other words, like it's not it's not a problem if you're trying to Uh, Make a sparkling blueberry wine because it—that's—it's not like it's going to go away. It actually just actually—it's—it's more that it sucks it up in inside itself rather than letting it. It it
1: wants to eat it somehow. Spurs out. It's it's the only (laughs) wine that I've had that happen to, and I'm not quite sure why. And we do make a carbonated sparkling blueberry wine, which is quite delightful, and and it takes a good volume of CO2. It'll it'll eat that up just fine.
0: Well, this is
2: another this is... fruit that's been a tremendous challenge to figure out and still haven't figured it out today is uh, the kiwi berry. I mean, we have we have bottles of 100% kiwi berry wine that we made back in 2010, 2011 or 12 that today are in my cellar and are crystal clear, crystal clear. They've They've, they've not thrown any sediment. And yet, uh, the, uh, subsequent vintages of the same wine, using the similar or same recipe, uh, after a year, throw so much sediment they become cloudy, and and everything in between. Uh, it, it seems like the the any wine that you've made, Ken, that's included kiwi berries, has has had these 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 strange anomalies that, that, I I uh, don't that have we that just out. don't understand. Yeah, I don't have that figured out, huh? For sure,
0: that is wild. Well, very cool. Well, I mean, I'm sure we could given the number of ingredients that you work with we could talk all day about everything that you guys do um but is there anything that i you guys would like to say just as a as a wrap up i want to you know not not keep you all day and and uh, just make this like a, a listenable <laughs> episode for people to enjoy but um but yeah no anything that you know anything that i missed asking you about or or anything that you think is important to know about what you guys are doing that i didn't that we didn't not cover yet, yet.
2: I I just want to say right off right out of the gate that it's such a joy to talk to somebody else who gets it (laughs) who understands
1: because so few
2: people really get it really understand that there's there's so much so much wonderful stuff that can come out of this type of thinking and experimenting and and uh and so it's just been it's been a real pleasure hearing you talk about this stuff and and, and not just hear talk about it, but understand it. So, uh, thank Fantastic. you.
0: Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, I, I, th- I think it's so funny how much lip service gets paid to the expression of terroir in wine. And we're working with, <laughs> you know, grapes that come from another continent and <laughs> don't wouldn't thrive without massive crutches whether it's like constant irrigation or (laughs) sprays of all different kinds to be able to actually survive and produce a consistent crop in the climates where it's grown around the planet in certain cases and and yet we're you know concerned about terroir and it's like what is more terroir than what you guys are doing i can't think of anything you know like that's that's yeah like that approach if you want terroir you have to take that approach Like if, if you know it's that's just a whole exam re-examination of what that means in wine Absolutely. and I yeah, yeah and yeah. it
1: all evolved from really from Bob and Ken's backyard, the dogo crab apples, the the blueberries uh started from a neighbor's farm and we live in the you know one of the best blueberry barren regions of the world that you know our blueberry wine evolved into, and yes, yeah, so it's I agree it's it's really. It's about terroir, it's about the experience, it's about the flavor of something that it's like to be here that is no other place on Earth. I mean, you can't make
0: a blueberry wine that's... Isn't that more interesting? Yeah, it's much more interesting. interesting. We we want to just make the same wine everywhere around the planet? Like, Don't we want to try something unique everywhere we go wouldn't it be cool to have like a rainbow of diversity right. in the alcoholic beverage industry you know that we consider yeah i don't know like it just seems so obvious to me Well, <laughs> yeah, an industry, yeah. right
1: farmers
2: are growing things and we're able to create a different um path for for utilization and it provides jobs and agriculture and and th- I mean, agricultural things that grow here I mean, what's better than that
0: yeah. Yeah, that's true. It, it really supports, you know, local farmers. I, I mean, we didn't mention this. I saw this on your website, but um, you're participating in something that provides a, a living wage for your employees. Do you want to talk uh, about that?
2: Well, uh, yeah. So er, early on in in our winery, I, I read about a, a another business in Vermont that had had to figure out how to how to put a, a surcharge onto their onto their meals at a restaurant and and applied that surcharge to the to the wages of their employees and and was on this mission to figure out how to how to treat everybody equally and fairly and and uh, and i just was so inspired by this concept all of us were we 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 looked into it and we think this is what we need to be doing we you know i honestly i'm no no better than the guy who has to clean the dishes at our at our restaurant every day I, I'm no better and I don't deserve any more than that person. That person is as integral part of our organization and our business as, as anybody else. And so we wanted to start operating in that way so that in the best of our ability, we could treat everybody the same, treat everybody equally, and pay people a wage that is that is uh, a living wage that you can actually afford to live on mm-hmm. because that's not what's happening in most places. And, and I, I don't know that we're going to, we're going to solve this problem but we're going to try damn it <laughs>
0: <So> <laughs> you might that's solve been it. our mission in, in everything we
2: do and that's why i say it's really about this culture that the three of us came together and and are doing what we're doing because we're inspired by the excitement and energy and passion that it comes from building something new building creating a new idea and a new approach and a new a new way to solve a problem and a new way to uh, think about a, a beverage that people have thought about differently for for thousands of years so that's a that's an excitement and an energy that just really percolates through everything we do and that's why i said in the in the very beginning of this conversation uh the the relationship that the three of us have is very much at the at the core of the culture that that is the business that we've created and and uh, that culture is is very much about like you said the the, the uh creating something that's unique, that's special, that's fair, that's that's that that supports the the that supports all of our team, that supports uh, uh, that supports our community. I mean, It's been as it's been as important to me to be successful as a business as it has been for us to be successful in our community, on our main street, in this small town of Meredith and uh, let let the town of Meredith share in our success and and vice versa. So. Uh, so yeah, I think that's uh, that's been an important context of our business since the beginning.
0: Well, thanks guys. Sorry. This has been really great talking to you. Like like you said, it's just great to connect with folks who who are have this approach. It's like nice to know you're out there. First of all, just as to bring hope to my life <laughs> and hopefully to others who are starting to have the same kind of thinking. But I think you know as we move into a you know into the 21st deeper into the 21st century, where I think so much of what has been considered the traditional wine industry is being put to a stress test and failing. Um, And as you guys were saying, younger consumers less and less care about that quote unquote traditional wine industry, that wine culture Um, and and are buying less and less of it. Um, I mean, I think the answer is essentially what you guys are doing. So um, hats off and congratulations. And I can't wait to try all of these things.
1: Real pleasure. Yep, pleasure, Adam.
0: Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And if you did and would like to support this podcast, there are many ways that you can. Patreon is something that you can subscribe to, to financially support this podcast. That link is in the show notes. And a big thank you to all of the folks who already subscribe on Patreon. You guys actually make this possible. And I am so grateful for you and for your support also you can buy wine from centralis wine i mentioned them at the beginning of this episode it is my winery and the proceeds definitely help this podcast because it is the premier sponsor for this podcast and if you don't want to drink amazing delicious wine or you know sign up via patreon there are some other non-monitory ways that you can support like just leaving a great review or telling your friend about this podcast it's all helpful it's all much appreciated thank you so much